The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. One of the most dramatic events in Scripture, and not only in Scripture, but also in our world, actually took place at a time and in an environment that we think of and we've come to, to know of as the upper room. And, and it all happens at the end of Jesus' ministry when his disciples, Jesus and his disciples, they enter into Jerusalem and they're there to celebrate the Passover together. Now, the Passover was, was both a, a celebration um, but it was also a specific meal. It would kind of be the, the same thing as if we were to think about taking the 4th of July and mixing it together with Thanksgiving. It would be kind of like putting those two events together all at the same time. And it was a time where Jewish families, where they would come together and they would, they would have a, a special meal together. And they would remember what it is that God had done for them hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier when, when they were slaves in Egypt... And then on one particular day, the very next day, they all walked out of Egypt together as a free people. Because as a people, they had been in slavery in Egypt for for hundreds and hundreds of years, starting out as just a single family that in time grew to be an entire nation full of people, people who who knew nothing except for the life of a slave. And for 400 years, they were in slavery, and for 400 years, they... They prayed and prayed and prayed to their God, and for 400 years, their prayers went unanswered. Think about that for a moment. I mean, after four days of us praying, we begin to question and wonder if God is really there and if he's actually listening to us. And for 400 years, absolutely nothing from God. And then finally, seemingly out of nowhere, God sends to them a deliverer named Moses. And, and, and Moses tells them that, that tomorrow we're all leaving Egypt. But tonight, the angel of death is going to pass over the land and he's going to kill the firstborn of every home, of both man and animal, out of every single home that does not have the blood of a lamb marking its doorposts on the top and the sides of the doors of the houses. And so every single Israelite family in Egypt, they took Moses at his word and they slaughtered a lamb and they ate a special meal together. And then they took the blood of that lamb and they placed it on the doors of their houses. And that morning, that that night, the angel of death passed over. And the very next morning, the Pharaoh said to all the Israelites to get out, that they were to leave Egypt. And so these Israelite families, they packed up all their belongings and they headed to what we think of and what became known as the promised land. And 1,400 years after that event, Jesus is gathered with his disciples to celebrate that very same Passover meal. And, and, and they'd done this many times before, but, but this time things were quite different. See, the last time they had done this, things were going great, and, and Jesus was, was kind of like a celebrity. Everywhere that Jesus went, thousands and thousands of people, they would come out to see Jesus. They would come out just to, to listen to what it is that Jesus was saying, just to catch a glimpse of, uh, of this man, Jesus. He was, he was like a star in his culture and in his world. 
And the disciples, they thought this was terrific because they were the ones who were closest to Jesus. They were the ones on his left and on his right. And every time the crowds got bigger, the miracles got more and more amazing. But see, this time things were different. This time things had begun to change. Things were no longer going quite so well for Jesus. There were rumors that there was a group of people who were trying to arrest Jesus. And it was clear that the religious leaders, they were, trying to, they were trying to separate Jesus from these crowds of people that were following after him. It was very clear they were trying to accuse him of all kinds of things, crazy things, doing whatever they could do to try to get the crowds to actually turn on Jesus. But, but nothing that they said managed, managed to stick. But the disciples knew that if the religious leaders, if they managed to bring down Jesus, then that every single one of them, that they would also go down with him. And to make things worse, Jesus had become recently very obsessed with his own death. He kept talking about being taken away. He kept talking about dying. But the disciples, see, they, they just filtered all of that out. They filtered all those thoughts and all, all those ideas out because in their thinking, very much like in our thinking, if God is with you, if God is actually working around you, if God is present, then things get better, right? Because, because if God is with you and God is around you, then, then wherever it is that God is, then, then things get better because wherever God shows up, there's more certainty, not less certainty. And yet the disciples, they found themselves at a period of time and in a situation where, where fears and doubts and questions, they were all increasing and not decreasing. And see, normally Jesus would be telling them exactly there, where they would go to celebrate the Passover meal that day. They, normally he would send a couple of the disciples on ahead of the whole group to go prepare the room and get all of the, uh, all of the things that were necessary for the celebration ready. But here it was, the afternoon of the Passover, and Jesus hasn't even told them where they would be going that night to celebrate together. He just kept telling them that they were going to go to Jerusalem. And when they got to Jerusalem, things were going to get really, really, really bad. And he just kept saying that over and over and over again. And so they're thinking the very same thing that we would be thinking, which is like, Jesus, if you know that, then why are we going there? They get to the edge of the city. Jesus doesn't even bring them in. They just stay on the outskirts of Jerusalem waiting for the sun to set. And then finally, after it's dark, Jesus sends in just two of the disciples to, to meet this mysterious man who, who takes them to a, a mysterious location. And then it's finally in that moment that the disciples figure out Jesus has somehow prearranged the entire Passover celebration, but he never told any of them about what it was that he was doing. He, he didn't want anyone to know where it was that they would be on that evening because he knew they would be separated from the crowds and that they would be vulnerable. And so Jesus brings his disciples into Jerusalem under cover of darkness. No waving of palm branches. No shouts of Hosanna. No crowds of people lining the streets as they enter into the city. None of what they had experienced just a few days earlier. They quietly make their way to a house. They go upstairs 
to an upper room and they gather for the Passover meal. Things had clearly changed. What had seemed so certain to all of them just just a short time earlier had changed. Anticipation and excitement had given way to fears and doubts. And then once he's got all of his disciples together, they're all seated around this, this, this special meal for a time of what's supposed to be an incredible celebration to make things worse. Jesus starts by saying to his disciples in verse 18, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Literally, one of you is going to hand me over, Jesus said to them. And not one of them raised their hands and said, Jesus, what are you talking about? See, every single one of them knew exactly what it was that Jesus was saying. One who is eating with me. See, this was a sign of how deep the betrayal would actually be. To eat with someone in their culture was much like eating with someone in our culture. It was a sign of intimacy. It was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of closeness. They're in the most intimate setting possible. They're gathered around this celebration meal. And Jesus says, not only is it one of you, but it's one of you who has chosen to gather with me and to celebrate this incredible thing that God has done for all of us. It is one of you, Jesus said who is going to betray me. Verse 19, they were saddened or disappointed, and one by one they said to him, surely not I, surely surely not me, Lord. It is one of the twelve, verse 20, Jesus replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, don't miss what I'm telling you right now. Jesus is saying to them, don't miss what it is that's taking place. I I don't want you to misunderstand what's happening right now, even though you don't understand it, even though there's questions and fears and doubts and anxiety. What is happening right now is happening because this is what God intended to happen. That God is still in control. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. This book, this book right here, this book that every single one of us have in our homes, that every single one of us we pick up and we read together on Sunday mornings. Hopefully you read it during the course of your week. This, This book, every single thing in it, was written during times of incredible uncertainty. In fact, I would argue that as we as a people and as a nation, as a culture... And even as a world, as we face uncertainty and unpredictability and political instability and craziness, maybe in a way and at a level that that most of us have never even seen or experienced before at any time during the course of our lives, this is the perfect place to run to right now. 
Because if you grew up in church, or you grew up going to church, then your favorite Bible story, the Bible story that you love to read over and over again, the story that, that you could not wait to hear someone to tell you about or to teach, that story, that psalm, that section of scripture, all of it, every single part of it was written during a time of incredible uncertainty in our world. And if you didn't grow up going to church, or if you've never really read the Bible before for yourself, if you've never actually opened this book up and just read and heard what it is that it has to say, now is the perfect time for you to do so. Because this is not a book filled with stories of people trying to have the most fun possible. This is not a book that tells you how to have all of your dreams come true and then go sailing off into the sunset someplace. It's not even a book that's filled with all kinds of and they all live happily ever after stories. That is not what's in here. Instead, every single thing that we, we read, every single thing that we draw hope and security from, every single thing in this book, all of it comes from uncertain times. All of it comes from very troubled times. From the lives of people who discovered that in the midst of uncertainty, that God was actually still certain. In the midst of the kind of uncertainty that comes when you cannot discern any movement whatsoever from God's hand. Where the only thing that seems certain is God's absence. People who discovered that in the midst of situations and circumstances like that, that God is still trustworthy. If ever there was a time for us, both as a church collectively, as a people, but also individually, if ever there was a time for us to pick this up and actually read it for ourselves, it is right now. Because in this book, what we find is the story of a teenager that's familiar to many of us. A teenager named Joseph who finds himself at the bottom of a well, and above him he hears his brothers having this conversation. Should we kill him, or should we sell him? I don't know, what do you think we should do? I, I think we should kill him. No, I think we should sell him, because at least that way we can get some money out of all this. And as you read that story, what you find is that God was actually with Joseph in the middle of that situation. Or you pick it up and you read the story about King David. King David, the king whose lineage the Messiah would actually come from, come from one day. King David who wakes up one morning to find out that his own son has raised an army and is about to enter the city of Jerusalem to conquer him as king and to replace him as king. Now, all of us as parents, every single one of us, we've all had trouble with our kids at some point in our lives, but an army to destroy his father. And you find out that God is actually with David in that situation as well. Then there's the story that I'm sure all of us have read many different times as we were growing up. It's the story about a mother who has a baby son and who loves her son so much. But she finds out that the ruler of her nation, the Pharaoh, 
that he had decided to murder all of the baby boys who were like hers because he had come to the conclusion that there were too many Israelites living in his nation. And she is so desperate to save her baby son that she loves so much that she takes him, she wraps him up in a blanket, she puts him in a basket, and she sends him out into the Nile River. As if to say, if it's between the crocodiles and the river, or the Egyptian soldiers, I guess I'm going to take my chances with the crocodiles. And as you read that story, you, you, you put yourself into that unimaginably horrific situation, you discover that somehow God was actually there as well. And that God would actually use this, this little baby who his adoptive mother named Moses to deliver an entire nation of people from suffering, and from slavery. And as you read that story, you find out that that story was really the foreshadowing of another story. The foreshadowing of another baby who would be rescued from a very similar fate. That when Mary and Joseph, that, that when they, they learned that King Herod, who in a jealous rage had discovered that, that a baby boy had been born in his nation who would one day grow up to become the Jewish king, that he was so determined to never let that happen that he too once again decides to simply get rid of an entire generation of Jewish boys living in the region of Bethlehem. And yet Mary and Joseph escape by going back to, of all places, Egypt, in order to save the life of the baby Jesus. See, every time you read the story, you open up the book, and you find out that in the midst of incredible uncertainty, that God is still working, and God is still present. Every single story, you read them for yourselves. When it feels like, like the situation is going completely horrible, when it seems like the, the bad king is won, when it seems like God is absolutely absent and there is no sign whatsoever of God's presence, what we find is that, that not only is God still working, but he is still active and he is still with us. Verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. Now we hear these words so often whenever we celebrate communion together, it's easy for us to miss how incredible what it is that Jesus was saying to his, his disciples truly was. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. He gave thanks and he gave it to his disciples saying, see this isn't really what you think it is. I know that you've been eating this Passover meal for, for years, ever since you were little children. But from now on, whenever you eat it, as my followers, this is my body. Jesus, what do you mean this broken little piece of bread? What do you mean this is your body? I mean, Jesus, if you're from God, then things have to get better. Jesus, if you're the Son of God, then, then, then things need to turn around. Jesus, if you're from God, then there needs to be more certainty here, not less certainty. 
Then he took the cup, gave thanks, offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, Jesus said to them. And by telling them that, Jesus was foreshadowing to them what was going to happen the very next day when each of them would actually see Jesus nailed to a cross and die right before their very eyes. And as they leave that upper room and then they go over to to the Garden of Gethsemane where eventually Jesus will be betrayed and arrested. As they're walking to Gethsemane, Jesus says to, to them in verse 27, not only will one of you betray me, but you will all fall away. For it is written, Jesus said, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, see, for some reason his disciples, they they never quite heard that. After I have risen, he said, I will go ahead of you in to Galilee. And Peter is listening to all this take place and he's thinking to himself, Jesus, there is no way that this is going to happen. Jesus, if God is with us, Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, then there needs to be more certainty. There should be more faith. There should be more miracles. Jesus, there should be more intervention. Jesus, there should be more of God's activity if you really are the Son of God. And so Peter declares in verse 29, even if all fall away, Jesus, I will not. Because Jesus... That's just not how the story is supposed to go. But then a few hours later, this very same man would listen as a young servant girl would just say that she saw him with Jesus. And he would deny ever even knowing Jesus three times. Now, here's the question that I want all of us thinking about, both individually, but also as a church, as we begin not only this series together, but as we continue to experience uncertainty in our world, uncertainty in our nation, uncertainty in our politics, as well as the uncertainty that comes in every single one of our lives each day. See, with all that uncertainty, here's the question. Can you actually trust God? Can you hold on to faith in God when you cannot see any evidence of His work or His activity in your life? I mean, can you continue to hold on to faith in God as a personal Heavenly Father? when you don't see any evidence of his activity in your life or in our culture or in our nation or seemingly at times anywhere even in our world. See, your answer to that question, your answer to that question will determine how it is that that you respond to, to the continuing but also 
the continual uncertainty that exists in our world today. Your answer to that question, my answer to that question, will determine how it is that we respond to the uncertainty that each and every one of us experiences in our own personal lives and in our families, in our jobs, and in our relationships as well. And see, the strange thing is this, and, th- and this, is, this is difficult. I'll tell you that right up front. This is hard. But it's also why this is so incredibly important, especially for us as American Christians who just naturally equate God with prosperity, who just naturally equate God and God's blessings with very tangible, very physical blessings because that's just what so many of us have experienced for for maybe even generations in our own families and in our own lives imagine this imagine if you were actually go to those men who were in that upper room that evening gathered around that table with jesus for that last passover supper and imagine you were to go to them just a few months after that event took place and you were to ask them this question peter James, John, Andrew, Matthew, when was the time? When was it darkest? When was the moment that you experienced the the, the darkest times as you followed Jesus? When was the time that you had the least amount of faith? When was that time when you were asking yourself, you know, did I make a mistake following this Jesus guy? maybe, Maybe he really was a false messiah. Maybe we really did waste our lives following him. See, if you were to ask those men that question, every single one of them, they would point back to that night. They would point back to that event in that upper room. They would point back to that situation where they were all gathered around the table and Jesus actually told them that things were going to get worse It was when we were sitting around that table and Jesus told us that not only would one of us betray him, but that we would all fall away. And then just a few hours later, we all did fall away. And then shortly after that, we actually saw Jesus arrested. I mean, we actually saw Jesus tried. We saw Jesus actually die right in front of our very eyes. You want to know when the darkest hours were? For us? See, it was those hours. It was because in those hours, everything that we were seeing around us, everything that we were experiencing, everything that we were feeling, everything in our circumstance was telling us that God is nowhere to be found right now. But see, if you were then to go to those very same men, And ask them this question. When was it in your time with Jesus that that you think God was actually doing his greatest work? I mean, was it during, was was it when the the crippled man was healed? Was it when the, the blind man was healed? Maybe it was when Lazarus walked out of the tomb. I mean, after all, you guys actually saw, you saw a man who had been dead for four days. You saw him come walking out of a tomb. With your own eyes, was that when God was actually doing his greatest work? 
See, if you were to ask those men that question, they would say it was those very same hours. It was those very same hours when it looked to us like God was absent. When it looked to us like God was doing the least. When it looked to us like God was missing. It was in those darkest, darkest hours that God was actually doing His greatest work. It was in those hours when we thought that God was absent that He was actually most active and doing His greatest work in our world because it would be those hours that would become the center of the salvation of humanity. It would be those hours that for literally thousands and thousands of years, countless generations of people from every language and every tribe and every nation would look back on and rejoice in. God's goodness and His grace. But if you would have asked any of them in the moment, they would have told you this is absolute foolishness because it is clearly over. Now that is a very difficult message for us. That is a difficult message for us as Americans who are also Christians. And yet not only is that our story as a people, as people who place their hope and their faith in Jesus as their Savior, not only is that our story because our story is reflected in the story of the gospel, but see, that is your story because for many of you, for many of us, that is our experience as well. That in the midst of broken situations, in the midst of broken lives and broken dreams and broken hopes, that God would actually do his greatest work. That God actually chooses to take broken, hopeless situations and then in those things show up in an amazing way. Oftentimes not the way that we want. Many times, though, not in a way we would ever ask for. Many times even in a way that we would never want to experience again. But so many times in a way that we would never trade. Because many times, God's way is to actually make the greatest things happen in the biggest messes that life in this world brings into each one of our lives. See, that's the miracle of what only Jesus can actually do. But my question for you is this. Will you hold on to Jesus when you cannot see his hand? When your faith begins to stumble and shake. When you're tempted to the look to the left and to the right. When we're tempted to focus on our circumstance. Instead of our Savior. See, now more than ever, this. This is the place for each and every one of us to run to and to open up 
and to actually read for ourselves. Because all of these stories, all of these events, and the birth and the beginning of your salvation, all of it occurred during times of extraordinary uncertainty and darkness in our world. Because the proof of God's presence with you in the midst of all kinds of uncertain situations, it's not in the circumstance that you find yourself. The proof of God's presence with you is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the promise that God makes to every single one of us that's recorded for us in Romans chapter 8 when he reminds us that in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And the all things that fall into your all things, they're going to be very different than the all things that have fallen fallen into my all things. But see, the promise, the promise is the same for all of us. That in all things, God works. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Because when life in this world is uncertain, God's feelings and his heart for you is not uncertain. And he is not about ready to let go of you or your family or our nation or our world. And regardless of what it is that we see or don't see, our God is the faithful God. And Jesus is still in control. God is still on his throne, and God is still a God that we can continue to worship with complete devotion. And God is a God that we can trust in the midst of all circumstances. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we begin this series together this weekend, and as we look into the midst of uncertainty, not only the uncertainty that we experience in our world as a people, but, Father, the uncertainty that simply comes in in life in this world that every single one of us experience personally. My prayer is that for all of us is that we would actually be a people that hold on to you as the faithful God. That we would hold on to the promise that you make to us in the cross, the promise of your son Jesus. That your Holy Spirit would give to us the faith that we need to know and the faith that we need to remember. That you are certain and you are trustworthy and you are faithful in all circumstances even if we cannot see your hand at work. And so, Father, we pray and we ask that your will is done. Your will for our lives, your will for our families, and your will for our world. All this we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.